Good morning. morning. One day, Jesus gathered his disciples around, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they thought for a moment, and one of them said, well, some people think that you're actually John the Baptist come back from the dead. And some people think you're Elijah, others think you're Jeremiah, still others think you're one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says this, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Jesus is asking us that question today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Here's what we know is a lot of people are really quite confused about this. They're not really quite sure, and you'll hear all kinds of answers. I think probably the most prevalent answer is that he is a great moral teacher. How many have heard that one? You know exactly what I'm saying. He was a great moral teacher. Well, there's a reason, I think, why people are so confused, and it's a lot of time because the pastors and the preachers are confused. Let me just share this with you. Dr. Karen Oliveto, she's the first openly uh, gay bishop in the United Methodist Church. Here's what she recently offered as a message to her flock. Quote, too many folks want to box Jesus in, carve him in stone, create an idol out of him, but the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting one, Prince of Peace, was as human as you and me. Like you and me, he didn't have his life figured out. Jesus had bigotries and prejudices, and she added, he even sins, which he had to learn to overcome. I have never heard anything so heretical in all my life. But let's begin with the first thing she says, that Jesus uh, is an idol, or we can't turn him into an idol. Let me just give you a definition of the word idol. An idol is something other than God, usually something created by human hands, improperly worshipped as a god. Now here's what you and I need to know before we go any further. Just so you know where we're going. I'm going to demonstrate to you today that in fact Jesus is God and that he is our creator. So if you could tell the person beside you this morning, Jesus is God. Go ahead. Very good. So we got the message. Now tell the person beside you also, Jesus is the creator. So let's get back to Dr. Oliveto. She suggests that it's improper to worship an idol or worship God. I, I would agree it's improper to worship an idol, but to suggest that Jesus could possibly be an idol is just an absolute misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Yes, as we're going to find out next week, Jesus was 100% human, but as we're going to find out today, Jesus Christ is 100% God. Now, it's important to understand this because only God can forgive us our sins. You remember when when people came to Jesus who needed healing, who were sick, who were caught in sin? Jesus said, go and sin no more. And the Pharisees, they had had a practical nervous breakdown. Who does he think he is that he could forgive sins? Well, Jesus is God. And that's how he is able to forgive people their sins. Now, Jesus was without sin, even though Oliveto 
suggests that he sinned, that he had bigotries and prejudices. I want you to know that Jesus did not have any bigotries. He did not have any prejudices. He did not have sins. He did not have to learn to overcome sin. The Bible tells us clearly that before he even began his earthly ministry, the very first thing he does, led by the Holy Spirit, is he's led into the wilderness where he is tempted. And the Bible said that he overcame Satan in the temptation. We are going to find out over the next five weeks who Jesus really is and why he is worthy of your worship and your praise and why he deserves to be obeyed. So what we're going to do, starting today, is we're going to look at John chapter 1. So I'm going to ask everybody if you could do me this favor, if in the next week, uh, perhaps even today after church, if you could take your Bible and begin to read in the Gospel of John. Read John chapter 1. And if you could, I would really, really appreciate it if you would read the whole Gospel of John. It's not a lot of pages. How many think we can do this? Are we, all, are we good with this? Everybody say amen. amen. Say, I can hardly wait, Pastor. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, we're going to have a revival breakout on our hands. So we look at John chapter 1, and we discover that John tells us in that very first chapter who Jesus is, And he begins with these words. In the beginning, the word, and the word, in case you don't know, is in fact Jesus himself. And by the way, in your small group tonight, you're going to explore why Jesus is called the word. So in the beginning, the word Jesus already existed. The word, that is Jesus, was with God, and the word was God. Now, there are some some churches... uh, 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 I would call them uh, heretical churches. There are some religious groups that suggest that Jesus was not God. Maybe if you're from a JW background, or maybe if you're from a Mormon background, uh, you would suggest or uh, uh, would have been taught that Jesus was not God. I'm going to tell you that the teaching of the church, of of the Christian church for 2,000 years, is that Jesus is, in fact, God. Jesus was with God in the beginning, because he was not created. Jesus is one with the Father, and Jesus declares that, and John tells us of those different passages where Jesus declares this. Now, I just want to say this in case you're wondering what the word represents, what it means. The word really uh, is understood by the Greeks and by the Hebrews. It's hard for us to understand it, but let me just explain it as simply as I can. The word is the express will of God. It's the execution of God's will. So, for instance, when you're reading in the first chapter of Genesis, where it says, God said, let there be light, let there be, that let there be is, in fact, Jesus. It's the fiat of God. It is God declaring. God wants this done, and Jesus makes it so. Now, let me just share another verse with you. In the third verse of John chapter 1, it says, God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So we discover further that Jesus is our God, and we discover that he is our creator. And God said, let there be light, let there be a sun, let there be a moon, let there be an ocean, let there be plants. Jesus, God declares it, and Jesus makes it so. I'm going to tell you, it's not just John that declares to us that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the creator. 
Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, in the very first chapter, in the first few, uh, few verses, verses 19 and 20, it says, what may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Did you hear that? Jesus may be known through the creation. What I'm going to do now is something we have never done before. We're going to show you a video, not a brief one, but a rather uh, lengthy one, and that will constitute most of my message. And then I'm going to close with something I think is one of the coolest discoveries that I've had in a very long time, and I'm going to share it with you. So let's take a look then at the, the video clip for this morning, shall we? powerful telescopes have unlocked mysteries about our universe never before revealed, giving us amazing new scientific insight into the origin of life. Has science discovered God? <laughs> Wait a minute, hasn't science proven we don't need God to explain the universe? What is it about this discovery that is so fundamentally different, and why has it stunned the scientific world? Well, this discovery, along with what molecular biologists have learned about the sophisticated coding within DNA, have many scientists now admitting that the universe and life itself appear to be part of a grand design. One cosmologist put it this way, many scientists, when they admit their views, incline toward the design argument. Surprisingly, many scientists who are now talking about God have no religious belief whatsoever. So, what are these stunning discoveries that have scientists suddenly speaking of God? Well, there are three revolutionary discoveries from the fields of astronomy and molecular biology that really stand out. One, the universe had a beginning. Two, the universe is just right for life. And three, DNA coding reveals intelligence. The statements leading scientists have made about these discoveries may shock you. Let's take a look. The universe had a one-time beginning. Since the dawn of civilization, man has gazed in awe at the stars, wondering what they are and how they got there. Although on a clear night, the unaided human eye can see only about 6,000 stars, Hubble and other powerful telescopes reveal there are a billion trillion stars clustered in over 100 billion galaxies. In fact, our sun is like one grain of sand amidst the world's beaches. But prior to the 20th century, the majority of scientists believed our own Milky Way galaxy was the entire universe, and that only about 100 million stars existed. Most scientists of the past believe that our universe never had a beginning. 
They believed that mass, space, and energy that compose our entire universe had always existed. But in the early 20th century, astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe is expanding. Rewinding the process mathematically, he calculated that everything in the universe, including matter, energy, space, and even time itself, actually had a beginning. Well, shockwaves hit the scientific community. Many scientists, including Einstein, reacted negatively. In what Einstein later called the biggest blunder of my life, he fudged the equations to avoid the implication that the universe had a beginning. Well, perhaps the most vocal adversary of the idea that the universe had a beginning was British astronomer Sir Frederick Hoyle, who sarcastically nicknamed the creation event a Big Bang. He stubbornly held to his steady-state theory that the universe had always existed. Well, so did Einstein and other scientists until the evidence for a beginning became overwhelming. The logical conclusion was like the proverbial elephant in the room, namely that something or someone beyond scientific investigation must have started it all. Then finally, in 1992, the COBE satellite experiments proved that the universe really did have a one-time beginning in an incredible flash of light and energy. Although some scientists called it the moment of creation, most preferred referring to it as the Big Bang. Astronomer Robert Jastrow tries to help us imagine how it all began. The picture suggests the explosion of a cosmic hydrogen bomb. The instant in which the cosmic bomb exploded marked the birth of the universe. So the conclusion is, everything in the universe came from nothing. Science is unable to tell us what or who caused the universe to begin, but some believe it clearly points to a creator. Well, British theorist Edward Milne wrote a mathematical treatise on relativity which concluded by saying, As to the first cause of the universe, in the context of expansion, that is left to the reader to insert, but our picture is incomplete without him. Another British scientist, Edmund Whitaker, attributed the beginning of our universe to divine will constituting nature from nothingness. Many scientists were struck by the parallel of a one-time creation event from nothing with the biblical creation account in Genesis 1.1. Prior to this discovery, many scientists regard the biblical account of creation from nothing as unscientific. Although he called himself an agnostic, Robert Jastrow was compelled by the evidence to admit now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. Another similar statement came from agnostic George Smoot, the Nobel Prize winning scientist in charge of the Kobe experiment. He put it like this, There is no doubt that a parallel exists between the Big Bang as an event and the Christian notion of creation from nothing. Scientists who used to scoff at the Bible's account of creation are now admitting that the biblical concept of creation from nothing has been right all along. 
Cosmologists who specialize in the study of the universe and its origins soon realized that a chance cosmic explosion could never bring about life any more than a nuclear bomb would unless it was precisely engineered to do so. And that meant a designer must have planned it. They began using words like super intellect, creator, and even supreme being to describe this designer. Why is this? Because the universe is finely tuned for life. Physicists calculated that for life to exist, gravity and the other laws of physics that govern our universe needed to be intricately tuned just right or our universe couldn't exist. For instance, did you know that if the expansion rate of the universe had been slightly weaker, gravity would have pulled all matter back into a big crunch? We're not talking about merely a 1 or 2 percent reduction in the universe's expansion rate. Stephen Hawking writes, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have re-collapsed before it ever reached its present size. Well, on the flip side, if the expansion rate had been a mere fraction greater than it was, well, all galaxies, stars, and planets could never have formed, and we wouldn't be here. And for life to exist, the conditions in our solar system and our own planet also need to be just right. For example, we all realize that without an atmosphere of oxygen, none of us would be able to breathe. And without oxygen, water couldn't exist. Without water, there would be no rainfall for our crops. Other elements such as hydrogen, nitrogen, sodium, carbon, calcium, and phosphorus are also essential for life. But that alone is not all it's needed for life to exist. The size, temperature, relative proximity, and chemical makeup of our planet, sun, and moon also need to be just right. And there are dozens of other conditions that needed to be exquisitely fine-tuned or we wouldn't be here to think about it. Scientists who believe in God may have expected such fine-tuning, but atheists and agnostics were unable to explain the remarkable quote-unquote coincidences. Theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, an agnostic, writes, The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. It all brings us to one question. The universe, accident or miracle? But couldn't this fine-tuning be attributed to chance? After all, odds makers know that even long shots can eventually win at the racetrack, and against heavy odds, lotteries are eventually won by someone. So, what are the odds against human life existing by chance from a random explosion in cosmic history? Well, for human life to be possible from a Big Bang utterly defies the laws of probability. One astronomer calculates the odds at less than one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. In other words, it would be far easier for a blindfolded person in one try to discover one specially marked grain of sand out of all the beaches of the world. 
Look at it this way. The odds of one random Big Bang producing life as we know it would be like one person winning over a thousand consecutive mega million dollar lotteries after purchasing only a single ticket for each. Not very likely? Really quite impossible, unless it was fixed by someone behind the scenes, which is what everyone would think. And that is what many scientists are concluding. Someone behind the scenes designed and created the universe. This new understanding of how miraculous human life is in our universe led the agnostic astronomer George Greenstein to ask, Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we've stumbled upon the scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? However, as an agnostic, Greenstein maintains his faith in science rather than a creator to ultimately explain our origins. Robert Jastrow explains why some scientists are reluctant to accept a transcendent creator. Uh, He says, There is a kind of religion in science. It is the religion of a person who believes there is order and harmony in the universe. This religious faith of the scientists is violated by the discovery that the world had a beginning under conditions in which the known laws of physics are not valid, and as a product of forces or circumstances we cannot discover. When that happens, the scientist has lost control. If he really examined the implications, he would be traumatized. Well, it's understandable why scientists like Greenstein and Hawking seek other explanations rather than attribute our finely tuned universe to a creator. Hawking speculates that other unseen and unprovable universes may exist, increasing the odds that one of them, like ours, is perfectly fine-tuned for life. However, since his proposal is speculative and outside of verification, it can hardly be called scientific. Although he's also an agnostic British astrophysicist, Paul Davies dismisses Hawking's idea as too speculative. He writes, such a belief must rest on faith rather than observation. Although Hawking continues leading the charge to explore purely scientific explanations for our origins, Other scientists, including many agnostics, have acknowledged what appears to be overwhelming evidence for a creator. Astronomer Frederick Hoyle wrote, A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. Although Einstein wasn't religious and didn't believe in a personal god, he called the genius behind the universe an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. Atheist Christopher Hitchens, who spent much of his life writing and debating against the existence of God, was most perplexed by the fact that life couldn't exist if things were different by just one degree or one hair. Davies acknowledges, there is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. 
the impression of design is overwhelming. But astronomy is not the only area where science has discovered evidence for design. There is another discovery, DNA, the language of life. As recent as 1953, molecular biologists discovered intricately complex design in the microscopic world of DNA. This tiny molecule has been called the brains behind each cell in our body, as well as every other living thing. Yet the more they discover about DNA, the more amazed they are at the brilliance behind it. Scientists who believe the material world is all that exists, like Richard Dawkins, argue DNA evolved by natural selection without a creator. Yet even most ardent evolutionists admit that the origin of DNA's intricate complexity is unexplainable. DNA's intricate complexity caused its co-discoverer, Francis Crick, to believe that it could never have originated on Earth naturally. Crick, an evolutionist, believed life is too complex to have originated on Earth and must have come from outer space. He wrote, An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that, in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to almost be a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. The coding behind DNA reveals such intelligence that it staggers the imagination. A mere pinhead volume of DNA contains information equivalent to a stack of paperback books that would encircle the Earth 5,000 times. And DNA operates like a language with its own extremely complex software code. Microsoft founder Bill Gates says that the software of DNA is far, far more complex than any software we have ever developed. Richard Dawkins and other evolutionary biologists believe that all this complexity originated through natural selection. Yet, as Crick, a Nobel Prize winner, remarked, natural selection could never have produced the first molecule. Many scientists believe that the coding within the DNA molecule points to an intelligence far exceeding what could have occurred by natural causes. In the early 21st century, noted atheist Anthony Flew's lifelong unbelief came to an abrupt end when he studied the remarkable intelligence behind DNA. Flew explains what changed his position. What I think the DNA material has done is to show that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements together. The enormous complexity by which the results were achieved looked to me like the work of intelligence. It now seems to me that the finding of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. Although Flew was not a Christian, he admitted that the software behind DNA is far too complex to have originated without a designer. All this scientific evidence leads us to honestly consider that life and the universe have the fingerprints of a creator. 
Are scientists now convinced that a creator has left his fingerprints on the universe? Although many scientists are still bent on squeezing God out of the universe, most recognize the religious implications of these new discoveries. In his book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking, who doesn't believe in a personal God, attempts to explain why the universe doesn't need God. Yet when faced with the evidence, even Hawking has also admitted there must be religious overtones, but I think most scientists prefer to shy away from the religious side of it. As an agnostic, world-renowned astronomer Robert Jastrow had no Christian agenda behind his conclusions. However, he freely acknowledges the compelling case for a creator. He writes of the shock and despair experienced by scientists who thought they had squeezed God out of their world. These are his words. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So, what if, after all, there is a creator? If there is a superintelligent creator, the question arises, what is he like? Is he just some cosmic force like in Star Wars, or is he a personal being like us? Well, since we're personal and relational beings, wouldn't the one who created us also be personal and relational? Many scientists, like Arthur L. Shavlov, professor of physics at Stanford University and winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics, believe that these new discoveries provide compelling evidence for a personal God. He writes, It seems to me that when confronted with the marvels of life in the universe, one must ask why and not just how. The only possible answers are religious. I find a need for God in the universe and in my own life. If God is personal, and since he has given us the ability to communicate, wouldn't we expect him to communicate with us and let us know why we are here? Well, as we've seen, science is unable to answer questions about God and the purpose for life. However, since the Bible was right about creation from nothing, might it also be trustworthy regarding God, life, and purpose? Two thousand years ago, a man set foot on our planet who claimed to have the answer to life. Although his time on earth was brief, his impact changed the world and is still felt today. His name is Jesus Christ. In the beginning, the Word, that is Jesus, already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John declares that Jesus is God, the Creator. And as we just saw from this, what I think was an excellent video presentation concerning what science has discovered about the creation, one can't help but agree with the Apostle Paul when he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, 
so that people are without excuse. Isn't it interesting? All of these scientists, these philosophers, biologists, physicists, they say or speak about great intellect, superior intellect. The chances of this happening are impossible. At the end of the day, what you and I need to understand is that we make a choice to believe or not to believe. I'm going to address that more in just a moment. But before I do that, I want to tell you of one more evidence that Jesus is the creator and that he is God. Jesus actually declares that about himself. If you read this passage of scripture, you may be reminded of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Most of us know that verse off by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is an English translation of the Hebrew verse. That Hebrew verse has seven words, but only six of those words are translated in the English version. There's one word that is left untranslated, and there's a reason for it. Let me, uh, before I tell you the reason, let me just show you it in the Hebrew. There it is. Um, I'm not going to attempt to read that, but there it is. That's the Hebrew, the very first verse in the Bible, and right smack dead center of that verse are these two letters, and it is Aleph and Tav. Now, in, in English, we know that the first letter of our alphabet is very good class, and the last letter of our alphabet is Z. In Hebrew, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph, and the last letter of the alphabet is Tav. Now, I want you to see something here. Because uh, Jesus says this about himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I remember when I first heard that about Jesus, and I wondered, why is Jesus calling himself the Alpha and Omega? I kind of, I kind of get the drift of it. I understand that he's the beginning and the end. But why is he using that as a title? There's so many other ways to describe himself. Well, folks, I have to tell you, it was really quite exciting for me as I was preparing for the message today. And I came across this passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I've never seen this before. Some of you maybe have come across this before. But that Aleph Tav, remember the Hebrews read from the right to the left. That Aleph Tav is exactly the same as the Alpha and Omega. And we see Jesus in the very first verse of our Bible, Genesis 1.1. And we see him in the very last chapter of our Bible. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I was there at the creation. That Aleph Tav, I got to tell you has left Jewish scholars scratching their head, wondering why on earth that was included in that verse. Because quite frankly, as the rabbi says, the Aleph Taf is not necessary. Let me just read to you a quote from a rabbi. He says, the use of the Aleph Taf is puzzling. And remember, that is the Hebrew, Alpha and the Omega, A to Z. It's puzzling because it isn't needed. The word the words Hashemayim, which means the heavens, and Haaretz, which means the earth, are already sufficient to know the meaning of the verse. 
and the sentence would work fine without the Aleph Tav. He explains how Genesis 1-1 is a great example of how the Hebrew scriptures are filled with veiled marvels of hidden meanings and wonders that have puzzled rabbis for centuries. The rabbis may not know why the Aleph Tav is included in Genesis 1-1, but as Christians, we certainly understand why God inspired the writers to include that Aleph Tav. It was shrouded for millennia, so that when Jesus did come, and Jesus did declare himself as the Alpha and the Omega, it would become clear to us that Jesus' life was not an accident. It wasn't a coincidence. It was God's divine plan, his divine purpose to send his son, Jesus Christ, into this earth. Jesus, the creator, Jesus, the God, came to this earth. And over the next four weeks, you're going to find out why Jesus had to come to this earth. We're going to discover who Jesus is. But suffice it to say today, Jesus is your God. Jesus is the creator. And Jesus is calling us for a response to him. Most of us here today know the Ten Commandments. And if I asked you if it was okay to break the Ten Commandments, I think everybody here would say, no, we cannot break the Ten Commandments. Why? Because they're the Ten Commandments. They come from God. They come from Mount Sinai. Well, I want you to to understand something today. Jesus is God. And every one of his commandments is as binding as the Ten Commandments. And in in fact, as, uh, as binding as all the 600 plus commandments of the Old Testament. Most of us, when we think about Jesus, we think of him as a great teacher. But here's what you need to know today. He is your God. And he calls you and me to live in complete and utter surrender to him, to obey his every command. And what did Jesus command us? Well, first and foremost, he commands us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And secondly, he commands us to love one another as we love ourselves. This is not a suggestion. Some people think of Jesus as just a great moral teacher, perhaps the greatest moral teacher of all time. But the Christian understands, or should understand, that Jesus is God. And you and I are called to obey him and do absolutely everything that he says. And so today, as you go from here, and as you open your Bible, and I hope that you're reading your Bible every day, if you're reading the words of Christ, understand, this is not just great teaching, it is the command of God for your life. Jesus has called us to follow him, to obey him, and to find life in him. Jesus is the creator, the originator of life. And by the way, folks, he's the giver of new life. For every single man, woman, and child who comes and puts their faith in this Jesus, who is God, the promise is that you will have new life. You will have eternal life. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. We began by sharing how Jesus asked his disciple, who do people say that I am? And Peter's response is this. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, 
Peter or John, you are blessed because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. I want you to know today, I can't just stand here and convince you to put your faith in Jesus. But there's someone called the Holy Spirit who's busy and at work even now speaking to your heart, drawing you to himself, trying to reveal to you that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is the Lord. He is God. He is the creator. And I want you to know today, he wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your Savior. He wants to be your God. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you, God, for all of these beautiful and hidden mysteries in the scripture that once revealed describe and show to us that Jesus is who he says he is. Father, thank you that you revealed yourself to me, to Alan Duncalf when I was just a boy. Thank you, Jesus, that over all these years, you've just kept proving yourself over and over and over again so that without a shadow of a doubt, God, I know that you are my God. You are my creator. I pray that for every single man, woman, and child in this room, that everybody here today would come to discover who Jesus is. So we're asking God in the same way that you revealed yourself to Simon, son of John, that is Peter, God, that you would reveal yourself by your spirit to everybody here today. And so we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Tell the person beside you, Jesus really is God.